0: Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi,
1: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and it's Wednesday, which means it's kind of a special day around here at the Tom Sumner program, Um, and and it's a special Wednesday, actually, um, and I'll be telling you more about that during the show today, but... uh, Because it's Wednesday, of course, that's uh, the day we do our political roundtable. That's coming up in about an hour, two hours of commentary and analysis with uh, our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. They'll be joined by author and legislative liaison for the convention of states project wesley whitaker he'll be joining us uh, this week um, for uh, commentary and analysis about um, headlines from the world of politics and current events but uh, speaking of uh, headlines and uh, politics and current events, we're going to start out this first hour talking with the uh, president and chief executive of the National Immigration Forum in uh, Washington, D.C. about the latest refugee crisis. He has a, uh, a new book. I think it's a new book. Yeah, it just... Uh, It goes on sale uh, March 20, went on sale March 28th. It's called Crossing Borders The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. And my guest is uh, Ali Nurani. And I think I'm saying that right. Um, Ali, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's great to talk to you.
1: Ali, let me let me ask about this this phrase, the the reconciliation of a nation of immigrants. We hear people talk all the time about how the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, um, and 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 then we seem to think that. Um, some people seem to think we have enough how do we reconcile being immigrants and being anti-immigrant
2: you know it's a really important question and uh, a lot of people ask me this is the you know is can our country be uh, reconciled you know in general much less around this question of immigration and what i found through the project and what we find every day in our work at the national immigration forum is that the reconciliation of a nation of immigrants begins with the reconciliation of communities, and what we found—and you see this, for example, quite often in a place like Grand Rapids, where you have conservative communities stepping forward and saying, "You know what? I, you know, it is my role uh, as a person of faith to welcome the stranger," um, and part of that process is, you know, uh, providing ways for people to. Um, have their questions answered, have their fears and anxieties addressed um, that revolve around immigration, but then provide them ways to really engage with the immigrant community, engage with the refugee community so that, um, you know, we realize that our differences um, are are not as great as kind of our political discourse would lead us to believe. Um, And what we've found is that by creating these spaces at a local level, you know the reconciliation of communities. We believe, I believe, that uh, it will be fundamental to eventually, hopefully, reconciling a, a nation of immigrants.
1: Well, we've all been watching the events that are unfolding in Ukraine, and I saw something in the news just just recently where uh, Ukrainians leaving. The the various cities that are under attack um, are crossing borders into different countries. And in one case, they're moving into Belarus where they're considered uh, illegal uh, aliens. And then they're going into other countries in other directions where they're considered refugees.
2: You know, what's happening in Ukraine is just a, it's a tragedy. And, and it's the uh, same it's people, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, So let's go back to late last year, uh, probably I think it was November, where uh, Belarus, <clears throat> Lukashenko, who's the president of Belarus, he took it upon himself to, in essence, entice migrants from Syria, Afghanistan, and other places in the Middle East to come to Belarus. And then he pretty much marched them to the border and said, cross into Poland. So um, Lukashenko and Belarus have a history, a very recent history, of um, treating migrants in an incredibly inhumane way, but then also weaponizing them in a political fashion. Now last fall when Belarus and Lukashenko tried to do that, the governments of Poland and Hungary pushed back and said, you know, we're not taking these refugees from Syria or Afghanistan. Now, like you point out, these individuals These Ukrainians, um, who are seeking protection in Belarus, they're being turned back, but then they're going to a place like Poland or Hungary, and these two countries who just months ago were turning away Afghans are welcoming Ukrainians with open arms. So there's a real kind of a dissonance here, um, but we also see it as an opportunity to, if you will, expand the conversation around immigration and refugees.
1: Is that... um that change in attitude in poland and hungary and and other places that border on ukraine is that um is that change of heart about pushing back on vladimir
2: putin i think it does um i think that uh, it's
1: more of a political calculation to say oh well we'll welcome ukrainians because you know
2: because of what Putin is doing. Yeah. It's, it's part of that, certainly. But also, you know, if we're going to be completely honest about this, Poland and Hungary see Ukrainians as, uh, um, in essence, brethren. You know, they see them as uh, Christian, as uh, Eastern European. Um, and that's a big reason why they are comfortable allowing Ukrainians to enter the country uh in the book i wrote about uh, the syrian refugee crisis and back in 2015 when prime minister merkel of germany uh committed to welcoming 1 million syrian refugees days after that commitment uh prime minister viktor orban of hungary refused to allow syrian refugees to cross hungarian border to, in order to get to uh, um, germany and he wrote in a german newspaper to paraphrase those who are coming from uh, Syria are not Christian; they're not European. So, Orbán very much kind of sees his role as you know keeping Europe uh, Christian, and he is you know quite frankly the one that has created a sense of this. The, he was the one that laid the early tracks of the nationalism um, and the Christian nationalism that we see uh, uh, kind of rolling across uh, the world and you know certain parts of the country today
1: now how does that how does that play out here because you you said something at the very beginning of the hour, ali about grand rapids and and conservatives mm-hmm. there um, while their religious teachings tell them one thing, their political alignments tell them something different
2: so I think what's been happening is that um the fear and the anxiety that many Americans have when it comes to immigration um, have been weaponized by uh, politicians. And, you know, you have, and that, that builds on top of, you know, the sense that, you know, those on the left are taking away somebody's religious identity. So all of these things are kind of conflated and weaponized by, you know, far right politicians. Um, and then in essence kind of drive people to a position of, well, you know, Somebody coming here from someplace else is going to take something from me. Uh, So, you know, I wrote about um, uh, a community in southern Idaho, Twin Falls, Idaho. Um, It's a very, you know, Idaho is one of the most conservative states in the country. And in 2016, 15 and 16, it became kind of the epicenter of the Syrian refugee crisis um, in a political sense. So not because there was uh, any significant number of Syrian refugees, but rather that you know, Breitbart News and Infowars and these far-right publications uh, descended upon Twin Falls and really began to tell lies about what was happening in the community. And what happens over the the course of a couple of years is that the Idaho dairymen, um, who've been there for, you know, a generation or two, uh, um, who themselves are politically and economically and socially conservative, they realize that uh, they have to do more to stand shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the refugee community and the immigrant community. And what they did is they created the Idaho, um, of the Unity Alliance of Southern Idaho, um, where they start to make the case publicly that immigrants and refugees were a benefit to not just their dairies, but more importantly in many ways, their communities, their churches, their schools, etc. And those are the kinds of examples that play out across the country. And, you know, in Grand Rapids, you've got Calvin College that has done some amazing work in uh, Honduras, in fact, uh, um, where you have, you know, this amazing kind of exchange program between Calvin College and uh, an organization, Association for Just Society in Honduras, who is working to improve the safety and the health of Hondurans so that they don't have to uh, flee their country and try to get to the U.S.
1: You mentioned fear that some Americans have of... uh, immigrants and, and people crossing the border, especially the southern border of the U.S. Uh, along Mexico, and how that's been weaponized for political purposes uh, in, in most cases. Is there any legitimate fear there, or is that, to borrow a phrase, fake news?
2: I'm not going to dismiss anybody's fears. Um, I think if anybody is, uh, um, there are things to be worried about. There are things to be afraid of.
1: There are Um, legitimate concerns.
2: There are legitimate concerns. Um, But there are ways to address those legitimate concerns in a way, in a fashion that treats people humanely. So oftentimes, you know, over, you know, these days, but, you know, even over the course of the previous administration, people will say, um, well, you know, at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, drugs are being smuggled, uh, and you know immigrants are being smuggled, and people are being smuggled, um, and that is true. But the question is, okay, what is the solution? Who is the actual uh, perpetrator of these crimes? And the fact is that is the cartels. The cartels have you know, created two lines of business. One is to smuggle fentanyl and other drugs across the U.S.-Mexico border uh, to really harm, uh, and in many cases, just. Uh, hollow out communities across the country they've also created a very lucrative line of business where they are selling to desperate migrants across central america and latin america the opportunity to get to the border and uh apply for asylum now and what that means is that you know in honduras if you have a taxi company if you own a taxi you have to pay a bribe to a local gang and if you can't pay that bribe the local gang says we're going to kill you or your family so you pay a Smuggler to get you out of Honduras, then you have to pay another smuggler to get you through Mexico, and then once you get to the U.S. Mexico border, you have to pay somebody else just to apply for asylum. That is one network of organized crime from the neighborhood in Honduras to the U.S. Mexico border. So, how do you actually under how do you dismantle that network? How do you take that line of business away? Many uh, you know many politicians on the left and the right will say, "Well, it is the migrants' fault." It is not the migrants' fault. That is a perfectly rational decision uh, that somebody would make to make sh- to do everything in their power to uh, so their family can be safe. The, the The solution lies in actually having a functioning immigration system, so that that migrants in Honduras can apply for legal entry into the U.S. and doesn't have to pay the cartels ten thousand dollars plus to try to get to the U.S. Mexico border. Um, so. You know, going back to your question, if the fear is about the smuggling of humans and drugs and the role of the cartels, let's actually put into place the solutions that undermine and weaken the cartels and treat people humanely.
1: Ali, I have to take a, uh, a short break here, but this is a fascinating conversation, and I want to talk some more. If you can stick around for a few minutes, can you, can you stay and we'll talk some more?
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: All right. Um, my my guest is uh, Ali Nurani. He is President Chief Executive of the National Immigration Forum in D.C. His new book is Crossing Borders, the Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants uh, that uh, goes on sale uh, or went on sale March 28th. Anyway, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right
3: back. Hello then. out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. ti double That
1: spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy. woo <laughs> welcome back everybody this is the tom sumner program we continue our conversation with the president and chief executive of the national immigration forum in dc ali Nurani. ali uh welcome back thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that
2: no worries they're fantastic commercials (laughs)
1: Uh, oh thank you um now i want to talk a little bit about the book but but let me ask first what the National Immigration Forum in D.C. is. What, what is it? What's its mission? Um, and, and, uh, and then we'll move on from there.
2: Sure. So the National Immigration Forum has been around since 1982. Our mission is to advocate for the value of immigrants and immigration to the nation. And really, coalition building has been part of our DNA from day one. So you know, I would say for the last decade or so, we have built out some of the most innovative partnerships with uh, conservative faith, law enforcement, national security, and business leaders across the country. So that you know, it's not just a Washington D.C.-based advocacy organization making the case for immigrants and immigration. Rather, it is uh, your pastor, your police chief, uh, your local business owner who is part of. You know, a pretty broad and, and, and substantive network across the country, all working together to encourage members of Congress to reform our nation's immigration system.
1: And what, uh, what do you consider to be the latest refugee crisis? It seems like there are, are several going on simultaneously.
2: You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot just about the last 18 months uh, um, of, of the immigration space, if you will, and quite frankly, you know, what the Biden administration has had to contend with. So you remember those first few days, the first few weeks of the Biden administration, there was a lot of anticipation and, and energy in terms of an effort to roll back so much of what we saw from the Trump administration. And then over the summer, uh, um, with the evacuation of allies in Afghanistan, was not, was incredibly chaotic, but then the way that the American public stepped forward and said, you know what, well, we're going to welcome Afghan allies to our communities across the country. And then months later, you have, you know, 10,000 Haitians arrive at the US Mexico border asking for protection. And then in the new year, you see this, uh, an increase in, uh, migration from Central America. Um, these very large kind of apprehension numbers at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then, as we were speaking speaking about earlier, um, the war in Ukraine and, you know, the displacement of, you know, 5 million people who have become refugees. And I think if there's anything that, you know, the last 18 months teaches us is that anybody can become a refugee or or anybody can become an immigrant. So from a systems perspective, um, it's pretty clear that our immigration system has been unable to meet the moment uh, that we're living through.
1: Now there are some conservatives in this country that are saying we should be pointing our resources at our own southern border rather than uh, uh, trying to muster up uh, aid and assistance to Ukraine. What Does the U.S. or other NATO countries for that matter have the resources to do both. Can we here in the States uh, address the issues at our own border and reach out a helping hand to uh, places like Ukraine?
2: The United States is the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, If we cannot meet multiple challenges that are affecting not only humanity but also the very idea of democracy, um, then I think we've got much much bigger problems on our hands so i firmly believe that the United States can help ukraine can protect Ukrainian refugees um, because you know the there's a dire need to show Putin and other authoritarians around the world that you know that democracies cannot be invaded um, and that you know liberal democracies around the world uh, and not just kind of in a global sense but in a community sense. I mean, if we start to really see the erosion of our democracy, you know, what happens to our freedom of religion? What happens to our freedom of speech? What happens to our collective right to vote? Um, these are really fundamental questions when it comes to democracy, and we're seeing these questions being challenged these issues being challenged around the world. So I, I firmly believe that the United States has a has a role in Ukraine. And then at the U.S.-Mexico border, as I was saying earlier, you know, the, the question is, okay. Where are we going to strategically invest resources and policy changes so that we're actually understanding and solving the problem? You know, throwing more money after uh, a bad, you know, how does it go again? Throwing more good money after bad uh, um, is just, it's not good for the American taxpayer. Um, so we've gotta devise solutions that undermine the cartels, um, that provide people legal pathways to enter the country Um, and that ultimately serve our nation's interests because, you know, we've got a labor shortage right now that's driving up inflation. You know, why aren't we actually bringing in more workers to to help, uh, you know, get the goods and the services on the ground so that we're actually driving inflation back down?
1: Yeah, I've heard economists make that same that same argument what is it you're hoping Ali people will get out of your new book what what does your new book bring to the conversation
2: so the first I would say the first half of the book really I really tried to to lay out the problem and the problem here is you know it's both at the, the local level in terms of how we are fighting with each other over fears and anxieties around immigration but it's also you know, at a national or even a global level, in terms of how you know the forces that be are are, are, are really exacerbating those tensions. But then the second half of the book is what I hope where people will find a sense of hope, and that's where I tell you know, share the stories of you know the Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, the Storm Lake, Iowa, um, you know the work in Oklahoma, um, and really try to make the case that and help people see that yes, migration is a is one of the greatest challenges that we're going to face as a country, um, but that this challenge is being met in some very, very unlikely places across the country as well.
1: When uh, Donald Trump was running for president and he was pushing for um, expanding the the border wall between the u s and Mexico, and, and he was pushing that. He was also talking about having more troops at, at the border. Um, why isn't technology making border patrols and monitoring um, more effective and efficient in a more costly way or less costly way?
2: You know, so there has actually been an increase in technology at the border. I've been there, you know, I've seen kind of how the border has become much more technologically advanced. You know, drones, uh, surveillance cameras, uh, sensors, you know, throughout the, the border in, in very, very kind of, you know, remote places. So the technology is there. Now, the thing here is that, you know, we're, uh, the majority of people are presenting themselves to Border Patrol to ask for asylum. That's why we're seeing such high apprehension numbers. Um, so you're not seeing people trying to kind of uh, uh, cross the border illegally uh, uh, when we see these high apprehension numbers. We're, the, the point of the, that's happening here is that people are crossing, you know, the smugglers and cartels are saying, okay, cross the river and go to that person in the white and green truck wearing the uniform and ask for asylum. Um, now, I'm not saying that they should receive asylum. Um, But according to law, they should be able to go through a process to request it. So it goes back to, you know, the question of, you know, we continue to need technology and and infrastructure, the ports of entry to, uh, um, you know, combat drug trafficking. But the best way to combat uh, human smuggling and the cartels, again, is to create the legal pathways so that somebody can apply for, for legal entry as opposed to paying thousands of dollars to cartels and hoping to be able to receive asylum.
1: You know in various news reports over the last really several years um, the numbers at the border seem just staggering to most people reading accounts. Is there such an influx that we just don't have the ability to manage the border properly and is, is that uh, are are those staffing issues? are they rules and regulation issues what what are some of the things that are problematic for mm-hmm. managing it better because we hear about immigration reform, but most people don't know what that means
2: sure so let's let's look at the number right first. So over the last two years, there have been 1.7 million people who have been apprehended and turned back to Mexico or elsewhere. Now, estimates are anywhere between 30 and 40% of that 1.7 million um, are people who uh, who have tried to ask for asylum multiple times. In essence, the recidivism rate. Now, why is that the case? That's the case because under Title 42, The public health restrictions that the Trump administration put into place and Biden has held to means that if I am crossing the border and asking for asylum and I'm spun back around and expelled, I am not processed under Title VIII, which would then lead me to to, in in the system as detained and deported. If I am detained and deported and then I try again, then there are deeper and more punitive consequences to trying again. So a big reason why you're seeing these large numbers of apprehensions is because of Title 42, the cartels are selling kind of a a three for one package, if you will, three attempts for the price of one to ask for asylum. So then to get to your second, the other part of your question, do we have the capacity? Clearly we have the capacity to apprehend and expel these folks. There's no doubt, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't see these numbers. the question underneath it is do we have the capacity to process these asylum applications? Now the Biden administration is is surging personnel infrastructure to the border to manage these applications. But the fact here is that not everybody will or quite frankly should receive asylum. Asylum, you know, in order to get asylum, you have to meet very certain, very specific criteria. But you know, for example, in Texas, there's a labor shortage in agriculture and in the restaurant sector. A large number of these folks are coming from Latin America. Um, they may not re- be eligible for asylum, but they sure as heck can fill a critical job in the service sector or the agricultural sector um, that would then, again, you know, start to, to dial down inflation and get goods and services to the American public. Um, and that's why I keep coming back to this idea that, or the need for legal immigration pathways, so that a person can pay the United States. Thousands of dollars to to enter legally instead of paying cartels.
1: What are the primary reasons that uh, that people want to come to the, to the U.S. is, and and I, I want to get into understanding better what constitutes asylum. My understanding is that there are people who want to leave Mexico and some South American countries because of. Drug cartels and and corruption and violence, and they're literally in fear for their lives.
2: Correct. So and then um, there are the, some
1: who just want to see if they can't grab a hold of the American dream. and it's it's more right. of a, an economic thing.
2: Right. So the formal to to be able to uh, um, to be eligible for asylum, you have to be able to prove that you have a credible fear of persecution for being a member of, for your, your race, your gender, affiliation with a social group, uh, um, or your religion, or your affiliation with a political group. Um, and all five of those, by and large, have to be kind of a state-sponsored uh, um, persecution. So what happens, so when I visited Honduras in 2019 a couple of times for the book, I quickly realized that the the factors driving people to migrate to the u.s were more complicated than i than i believed um there were factors that combined corruption at the national and the local level poverty uh crime and violence but then also droughts and climate change were driving you know coffee farmers off of their land and trying to get to the u.s so that's why um you know, you have so many people who are coming to the U.S., their only way to enter the U.S., whether it's to flee persecution or, like you said, get a piece of the American dream, is to apply for asylum. And I met with um, Carlos, who is a far- coffee farmer in Honduras, when on one of my trips, and he had just gotten back from the U.S. and trying to ask for asylum. Um, and he tells me, he says, you know, I, my, my farm is suffering. The harvest is not yielding. Um, I can't you know, pay my loans. I can't pay for health care for my daughter. The only choice I had was to mortgage my house and sell my car and pay a smuggler $10,000 to try to get to the U.S.-Mexico border and ask for asylum. And what he tells me is that he did not, he just, he just said to, you know, the asylum officers, all he's looking for is a better life and a, and a, um, a job. Uh, he didn't say he was being persecuted for. You know, violence, religion, or political beliefs—he just said, you know, he 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 wanted to get a piece of the American dream, and he got turned around. Right? It, it was not a legitimate application for asylum. Um. And but at the end of the day, you know, when I talk to growers across the country or construction, uh, 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 you know, contractors, you know, they're they're looking for workers. They're looking for somebody like Carlos. Um. And you know, when I was sitting with Carlos that afternoon, he was terrified that he was about to lose his house because he came back with absolutely nothing. Um, and that's a very, very, very scary place for a person to be who, you know, a year or two earlier was, you know, living a perfectly comfortable life as a coffee farmer uh, in the beautiful highlands of Honduras.
1: Is there, Aren't there some instruments in place where American businesses who want and need people can sponsor people from other countries to come in and take those jobs?
2: So for the agricultural sector, there's a program called the H-2A program. Um, this is a seasonal agricultural visa program um, that you know, has not, doesn't really fluctuate in terms of the number of visas. Most of those visas are already kind of allocated towards kind of labor uh, uh, relationships in Mexico. So there's been efforts to expand the program to meet Labor needs in the U.S. and the agricultural sector, um, but also expand the program uh, so that you know somebody like Carlos in Honduras can apply. But since Congress has yet to reform the H-2A program and you know, in essence expand those numbers of visas, you know somebody like Carlos cannot apply for an H-2A program. So you have an H-2B program that uh, um, has in essence kind of a service sector or kind of light manufacturing visas. Again, that number rarely changes. Uh, um, which is a big reason why, you know, we're seeing the hospitality sector um, is is terrified of a big labor shortage this this summer when everybody kind of gets back out on the road and vacationing. Um, So, again, you know, somebody like Carlos can't apply for that uh, H2B program. But the needs exist on our part economically, um, but the systems are not in place to meet those needs.
1: How is it because of the... uh Effect on businesses uh, and, and the fact that there are American businesses that would like to um, fill some of those positions that they're having trouble filling. How is this not a both sides of the aisle issue in terms of uh, um, reforming immigration or, or taking some steps to, to make processing them a little smoother?
2: Well, historically, immigration has been really one of the few issues that has enjoyed bipartisan support. Uh, you know, uh, President Reagan, President Bush, both, you know, elder and, and junior, if you will, uh, um, were both just adamant in their support. All of them were adamant in their support for immigration reform. Uh, you know, members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. The problem is, and we've talked about this now this morning, is that yeah, you know, so much of kind of the far right wing of the Republican Party has really weaponized the immigration debate to lead people to believe um, that immigrants are a existential threat to the American identity, and so that's why whether it's through our work at the National Immigration Forum, you know, through the, the 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 book project and the research that I did, um, I really believe that uh, there are ways to create opportunities for people who see themselves as Republican who see themselves as conservative to to see that immigrants um, are not an existential threat to our identity as a nation. Rather, they are an asset um, that should be recruited and welcomed into communities because, you know, ultimately immigrants are just like so many of us, right? People of faith, people who believe in uh, uh, the ability of each one of us to live, live to our fullest potential. Um, and so we're, we're caught in a really tough place right now in trying to, to kind of do this sort of work in the face of this sort of weaponization. But, you know, right now in Congress, you have the beginnings, I hope, of an effort to craft some bipartisan uh, uh, compromises over the course of this calendar year.
1: Well, Ali, we're getting close to the end of our time, and, and I'm always fascinated by this conversation because it is so much more complicated than... We like to believe, you know, we think that we can change a couple of laws and everything will get smooth again, but it's it's quite a bit more complicated than that. Where can people that have been listening to us? Obviously, your book is a great place to start, but are there some good resources where people can study on this and, and learn a little bit more than than what they're getting from uh, panicky headlines and, and social media? <laughs> memes and and posts
2: yeah so our website uh, is immigrationforum.org and uh, I'm uh, terribly lucky to work with this incredible team of experts at the forum Um, so if you go to immigrationforum.org you can get you know the latest and the greatest in terms of analysis of the policy questions you know what's happening in the news on immigration Uh, you know we can we can pretty much answer any question you hear to
1: get answered. Well, I appreciate you taking this time this morning uh, to, to share some of your thoughts with me and the listeners and uh, also in your new book, Crossing Borders, The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants by Ali Nurani, President and Chief Executive of the National Immigration Forum in D.C. Um, Ali, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Keep up the good work. Hey, thank you so, so much for the opportunity to chat, Tom. Thank you. All right. Take care. Again, uh, Holly Noorani is uh, has been my guest. Now, coming up at the top of the hour, we'll be uh, rolling into armchair politics because it's uh, Wednesday. And Wes Whitaker will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rozicki and uh, Henry Hatter, and I also want to mention that today is a special day because we'll be getting together at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And uh, I mean, Paul and Henry and me, but a number of other people at the Whitehorse at 4 p.m. as we launch the 15th year of the Tom Sumner program. Let me see, I've got, uh, got some notes here on the big event. Yeah, it's uh, coming up this uh, this afternoon. Um, it's uh, today, Wednesday, April twentieth, from four to eight p.m. at the White Horse on Court Street near downtown Flint. I'll be there along with uh, M.C.P.G. and P.G. is my uh, favorite Oakland County activist and uh, kind of a co-producer. Well, an associate producer of the show. She helps uh, line up some guests from time to time and jumps in and helps with uh, interviews occasionally, but we'll be launching the 15th year of what I like to think of as Civilized Talk Radio, the Tom Sumner program, and we're encouraging uh, listeners and uh, guests and donors to join us for some pizza and celebrate the show's past and reignite its future now that we're kind of working our way through this whole pandemic thing so uh, it's time to return the Tom Sumner program to its pre-pandemic excellence and I hope you'll help play a role in doing that and help us kick it off this afternoon at the White Horse. In the meantime we're going to take a short break and uh, we'll continue right after this. Hi this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. This is our shot.
3: Now it's up to you.
6: <laughs> yeah. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
4: So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you.
7: Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor.
4: I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nussel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Programme.
3: In these days of the Cold War, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, has become one of our most valuable tools. However, many Americans have complained that too much of the CIA's activities have been kept secret. Tonight, as a public service, we are happy to be able to present the secret head of the CIA, who will answer all of your questions. To maintain the secrecy of his identity, he will be wearing a mask. How do you, how do you do, sir?
7: My name, Jose Jimena.
3: <laughs> <laughs> sir, you, you just told your name. What no, are you going to no, do now? I, uh... <laughs>
7: What are you going to do now? Well, I guess I'll just take off the mask. But first, I'd like to say something. What? Trick or treat. <laughs> sir, as uh, a... <clears throat> oh, boy, sir... they're going to really kid me about that back at the office. I <laughs> sir, uh, first sir... First time I had this mask off. Do I need to shave up here?
3: No, no, <laughs> no. It has been said that spies work for the highest bidder. Would you tell me if that's true? What's it worth to you? <laughs> I, uh, I understand that uh, when you're a spy, you use very tricky devices, is that true? You
7: understand that when you're a spy, you use tricky devices. Well, you see this cigarette that I'm smoking? Huh? You see that? Yes. It's really a gun.
3: Come on now, you can't tell me that cigarette is a gun. Oh
7: yeah, how would you like a shot in the mouth? Mm. We also, among other things, use very Cleverly concealed cameras. Oh, really? Sure. See this front tooth here? See that? Yes. That's that's not really a tooth. That's a miniature camera. How does it work? Just press my nose. And and that'll take a picture? No, I just like people to press my nose. (laughs) Actually, uh, my nose is a a shortwave radio. And you work the camera by pulling in my left ear. What happens when you pull in your right ear? That turns on my nose. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's absolutely it. I think it's running now. Yeah.
3: That's amazing, a camera in your tooth. Uh-huh. I can't even see the little hole.
7: Well, that's because I was in the right half of the class. <laughs>
3: How did you get an idea like that, having a camera in your tooth?
7: Well, I had this film on my teeth. I thought, why let it
3: go to waste? You know, oh. Sir, I've heard that they do terrible things to gain information from captured spies.
7: Oh, boy. You heard about that, huh? Yes. I am telling you, they do. Oh. You know, one time, they captured me and they took these bamboo things, they put them underneath my fingernails and they lit fire to them. They were burning things under my fingernails. And then they came and they hit me on the shoulders very hard, right there with the bony part where it really could hurt. And then they punched me in the nose and they punched me in the stomach. And then they took these pair of pliers and they squeezed me all over the place. And then they started to torture me. Did you talk? No, I was too busy screaming. <laughs> you must have had some uh,
3: thrilling experiences.
7: Oh, I can think of one now. You know, one time I was on a plane, you know, and I had these form documents and I saw on the same plane, right down just a couple of seats from me, still in first class. Yes. Oh. Or a couple of foreign power people, you see? They were there. So I took these foreign documents and I went into the laboratory. But when I came out, they caught me with the documents. Well, why didn't you get rid of them? There was a sign that says, don't throw any foreign articles into the laboratory. (laughs) Sir, who
3: would you say was the
7: greatest spy in history? The greatest spy in history was Ludwig van
3: Beethoven. I didn't know Beethoven was a spy. You see how great he was? (laughs) As long as we have you here in front of these microphones, uh, would uh, be all right with you if some of the people here in the audience ask you some questions uh, pertaining to the CIA? Would you answer all of their questions?
7: Yes, I would answer all of them.
3: Oh, that's That'd very be good. i very happy Would, would you, you like please it? feel free to ask any questions you
7: have? How can we get a job at the CIA? You have any experience as a spy? <laughs> Not yet. Are you married? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've had experience. <laughs> what should a spy do if he's caught behind the enemy wanderer? If you are caught behind enemy lines, all you have to do is give the name, rank, and serial number of every soldier in the United States Army, um, where they are billeted and and how many bullets they have. <laughs> Otherwise they'll give you such a clock you won't even know. <laughs> yes. Sir, what was the best kept secret of World War II? that it's still going on. I mean, if you hear anything whistling, duck.
2: Does the CIA have a theme
7: song? Excuse me? Does the CIA have a theme song? Yes. It's over where? Yes, here you go. How many copies would you like?
3: Well, sir, in conclusion, uh, as a spy, uh, do you have a code?
7: No, it just sounds like that because i got this radio in my nose.
5: from your
4: That's the way.
6: trying to do a radio show down here it's a Tom Sumner program don't you know go on go on get out of here